When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet, you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, happy Mother's Day. It's good to see you. And uh, did you all, have you all ever looked at the history of Mother's Day by chance? I, I for a whim of it, looked it up this last week. It's been around for centuries all over the world, but interestingly enough, in America, it hasn't really been practiced much since 18... uh, uh, It wasn't practiced much up until 1870. Uh, If you'll recall American history, the Puritans came over, and uh, the Puritans, for whatever reason, there's explanations that don't make a whole lot of sense to me in my logical brain, but for whatever reason, did not celebrate a lot of holidays, including Christmas and Mother's Day and things like that that were traditionally celebrated. So in 1870, uh, Julia Ward Howe, anybody recognize that name? Uh, She wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And 1870, 12 years after she wrote that, she was so distraught by the carnage of war and conflict and abuse that had gone on over that past decade of the Civil War that she decided to declare the first Mother's Day in America. And the focus of it was for women and mothers across the land to bring peace, to stop the carnage of war that affected their sons and their daughters. And uh, I just want to honor you today. I know that's kind of interesting, and we we think of Mother's Day a little bit different. But you know what? Whether you're a mother or not, 
uh, all of us men owe you women folk a debt of gratitude for bringing kindness, for bringing peace, for bringing a tenderness to life that, uh, you know what, was left up to us. We'd be all out there hitting balls and boxing all day, and uh, life wouldn't be quite as good. So thank you. We honor you today on that. So today, if you're paying attention uh, by chance to the series we're in in Mark, you'll notice that we switched and skipped a passage. We did that intentionally. I wanted to preach that on, in order, and I wanted to stay in order, but the passage we skipped over, which we'll deal with next week instead, is the longest passage in all of Scripture on an exorcism. And I, I was thinking, how would you title that on Mother's Day? Exorcist meets mom. That, I mean, that might go viral on Facebook, but posting that on a billboard or advertising, that just didn't seem like a good Mother's Day topic. So, so we skipped ahead and we're dealing with this. And, and today we get to see some really profound lessons uh, of walking faith with God in the delays of life. Because this passage is all about the patience of God and the delays and what he's doing in that. And I think as we discover and we go through this, we're not going to necessarily find answers for all those delays, but we are going to find some lessons that help us trust Him. And uh, let's just pray before we get started. Lord, we welcome you today. And as we look at the delays, the times when it seems like you uh, are not working in the timing that we think you should that we believe you should, that our emotions scream, why are you not doing something yet? Lord, in all that emotion that we face so readily in life, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come to us today and that you would bring to mind the feelings and the thoughts that we need to think today and that you would speak to us your comfort, speak to us your hope, speak to us your peace, speak to us your wisdom by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So patience. Patience is this word we like to have, but we hate to have, all at the same time, right? I mean, you, you walk through life and you're facing a difficulty, you're facing a real pain point, and you, you walk through it going, God, give me patience, and then you go, oh, I hate having to have this patience. And then even on a simpler basis, you're, you're driving the car in traffic, late for work, or you woke up your kids an hour ago and told them to get ready and they decided not to start getting ready until 10 minutes before you're supposed to be out the door, right? And you're praying for patience so you don't scream at them, you don't do something you shouldn't do. In the car, you don't worry about screaming because nobody's there with you. But when it's your kids, you know, you put, and, and, and really, we pray for patience. We like to have it, but we hate having it because the delays in life feel like such a waste of time when you're in the car trying to get home and the traffic's there you're going man i could be home doing something more productive i could have stayed at the office make more money i could be home having time with my family and my kids why these delays and you just don't like it and it gets even more more frustrating we can pray for patience and our blood pressure goes down but when we're dealing with pain, we're dealing with suffering, we're dealing with sickness, we're dealing with disappointment in relationships, and we wish it would just resolve itself. The delays sometimes feel cruel, and they sometimes feel heartless. And it's easy to say what Jesus is teaching us today, and it comes across almost cliche and and almost too obvious to say, and 
and may even cause a reaction in us. Jesus is showing us today that God has a different timetable, different agenda than we do. An agenda far beyond what we can think. And before we actually start looking at the lessons of those delays, let's, let's try to look at the passage and understand and point out the delays that are actually going on in this passage. So the day is like any other day for Jesus. They had just crossed the, the lake of the Sea of Galilee. So now they're ministering back to the Jews instead of the, the Gentiles on the other side. And the crowds are forming. They're all around him. Jesus is teaching. He's answering questions. He's praying for people. He's healing the sick. It's just the crowds are all around him. And it's just like any other day. And this guy walks up to him. His name is Jairus. And he happens to be a ruler of the synagogue in the local area. And now, if you understand what that means, he wasn't like a professional priest. He was a lay guy. He was, he was, a, he was like the, the chairman of the board of a church. And he would have been in that day, especially the way they thought about things, he would have been a very prominent, respectful, respected man, great character, more than likely wealthy, a powerful person in the community. And he walks up to Jesus and he says, My little girl is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And this is not just a plea that's saying, you know, my daughter's in the hospital. I need you to go visit her and would you pray for her to be healed? And it's not even him saying, my daughter's in the ICU and I need you to go pray for her so she'll be healed. Because the word here actually that's used in this passage is eschaton. It's, it's eschatology. It's the extreme end of all things is what he's saying here. She is in the final stages of hospice care. He's saying she is about to take her last breath any second. And if we don't hurry, we might be too late. Will you please come? And just as an aside, this is an interesting interaction here because if you understand, if you paid attention to what's going on, there have been religious leaders all around Jesus attacking him, trying to undermine him. Jairus is the leader of a synagogue. So we don't know exactly what Jairus's thinking towards Jesus was, but more than likely, if he was in favor of Jesus, he was in favor of Jesus quietly, not publicly, because if he was public, the religious leaders who were trying to kill, trying to set up Jesus, trying to defame him, would have removed him from his position. And, and very likely, he was a person up to this point who would have been opposing Jesus and against him. It's interesting what desperation does in our lives sometimes in our faith. And Jesus says in response to his request, yes, I'll come. But back up for a second. Think more a little bit about what's going on in Jairus. His daughter is about to breathe her last. His wife and the family around him is just saying, you got to run, you got to go, go fast. His his anxiety level is ramped up. His insides are churning. He's wondering whether even going this fast, if he's going to be there on time, and he's, he's just tense. Just, Jesus, come quickly. And have you ever cried out to God in a moment when you thought it might be too late for him to answer? And then picture what's going on here. 
the way this describes the crowds and what's going on, it, it describes that the best thing I can picture, uh, think of is when you, when you watch the TV and you see like great politicians or rock stars trying to get through this massive crowd with their bodyguards, trying to form a wedge and trying to push them through. This is what's going on. You've got Jesus' 12 disciples forming a wedge around him and Jairus trying to push through this crowd. And it's hard because everybody's pushing back and they're all trying to reach out and touch Jesus. They're all trying to get his attention and hollering at him and talking to him and getting him, asking him questions, asking him for their needs. And, and they're forming this wedge pressing through. And it's, it's just really hard to get through. This is one of those kind of emergency sirens blaring moments when traffic is all backed up, stop and go. And you can't get anywhere. And the text shifts and goes to another story. We've got one delay. They can't get through the crowd. Will they get there fast enough? And the text shifts to a side story of this woman who's had this, she's just had this chronic problem. And as desperate as it is, and we recognize it as desperate, as as tragic, as desperate as it is, it's a chronic problem that's been going on for 12 years. It's not like it's not like something's going to happen and she's going to die in the next few minutes. And yet somehow we see her pressing her way through the crowd, getting up because she believes that if she touches the fringe of Jesus' garment that she'll be healed. And she reaches out and touches him and something happens. The text says, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He experienced some sort of physical sensation and we wrestle with this sometimes i think in our american stoic culture we want so often our faith to be mere words or thoughts or ideas or ideals or character and yet what we see in this passage is that this relationship with god both in ministry and and other places we see it in receiving his presence and him convincing us that he's real is actually also including a physical sense of the very presence of God and His power. A power encounter. And some of us can look at this text and say, well, you know, the power went out of Him because Jesus was all God, all, 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 all man, He was divine. Well, let's not forget that the way the Bible describes Jesus becoming a man, it says He limited His divine power and He operated through the power of the Holy Spirit just like you and I do in everything He did. And the Bible says to us that He gives us, when we follow Him, the Spirit of God to indwell us as a deposit, guaranteeing the finishing of the work someday. And so it is completely biblical, it is completely logical to assume that we will experience physical sensations and even physical reactions when God's Spirit moves among us. And yet we struggle with that sometimes. It makes us feel weird because we ask ourselves, well, what's the difference between the cold chill on my neck and God moving? You know what? We can figure that out. The Bible is very clear that we can experience God in reality and that He wants to come to us in that way as part of, as maybe even a major portion of convincing us to follow Him because we'll never get all of our questions answered. Sometimes it just comes down to knowing the relationship is real. Power went out of him. And Jesus does what? He stops and he turns in the middle of this crowd. The disciples still trying to press forward saying, make way. He stops and he says, who touched me? 
And it's almost this idea, you, you know, I look at this incident and I think the disciples probably just kind of did this flabbergasted laugh. Go, what do you mean? Who touched you? There's hundreds of people all around. What do you mean who touched you? And Jesus persists in saying, no, someone touched me and power went out of me. And then it says, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told the whole story. Now, we've talked about the last few weeks how one of the reasons why we can attest to the fact that these are eyewitness accounts is because they have details in them that are not relevant in any other kind of literature up until the modern novel. We've talked about the fact that when we have very powerful experiences, it burns the details into our minds. So if you're talking to a person who's had a really major encounter or an accident or just something that shocked their system, you'll often sit through the whole story and all the details. So think think about this delay. Think about how long this took. This woman's been sick for 12 years. The text here summarizes the story saying she went to doctor after doctor after doctor. Can you imagine Jesus calling her out and she's standing there going, I went to Dr. A and he gave me such and such and I paid him 20 shekels. I went to Dr. B because I got worse and he charged 40 and I still got worse. And he going on and on about all the doctors she went to. And then she says, she's probably saying as well, and I did the religious thing as well. I went and listened to the rabbis teach and recite the scriptures. And I tried to memorize everything about how to be blessed by God and how to be healed. And I did all of this and I still ended up here. And then I felt like if I just, I mean, can you imagine What is this, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes in the middle of the crowd and the disciples and Jairus are standing there going, Jesus, what are you doing? This, she's been sick forever, let her go. Can you imagine Jairus standing behind Jesus just just shaking with tension? And, and, and wanting to interrupt, wanting to push him along, wanting to step somehow in between him and this gal and tell her to go away and, and get home because of his daughter. Jairus standing there. How dare Jesus not have his priorities right? To deal with an, a chronic problem and take so long when I've got an acute problem, somebody facing death going to die. And then imagine Jairus' tension, his fear just going up. We're going to be late. We're going to be late. And all of a sudden he looks to his left and he sees some men from his, from his home coming and his fear just goes through the roof. He goes, oh no. And then he hears the words, your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? And that peak of fear has the bottom fall out. And he can barely stand up. Everything inside him is taken away. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been at a time when your just fear became reality and just you could hardly even stand up? You see, if Jesus, in this instance, were an emergency room doctor, there would be a malpractice lawsuit that would get awarded hundreds of millions of dollars. 
because we all know that a responsible or emergency emergency room physician isn't going to deal with a chronic problem that's been around for 12 years that could wait till tomorrow, even the next day, could wait till a doctor's visit next week and not even have to be here in the ER while somebody over here is about to breathe their last. If, if an ER doc did that and just had a 20-minute conversation while somebody died, what do you think is going to happen? And the people who come to Jairus say, why bother the teacher anymore? Can you hear the offense and the sarcasm in that statement? Probably for one of two reasons. Either, either there was a sense of disdain of saying, see, I told you you shouldn't trust Jesus, just like the religious leader said, or... Or it may have been the sense of shame. I'm not good enough for him to pay attention to me. God doesn't want to have favor on me. I'm not good enough for him to pay attention and spend time with me. And Jesus ignores the disdain. I can picture him just turning. The text says immediately. He just turns immediately. I can see him reaching out and touching Jairus because he's about to fall down with the bottom falling out emotionally, about to faint. And he touches him, he steadies him, he smiles, and he says, trust me. You see, Jesus in Jairus' mind has his timing and his priorities all out of whack. And we all struggle with this timing thing as well in life, don't we? Timing, in one sense, if you look at it culturally or, or look at it personally, it's really a relative thing. Although if it's my time, it's absolute, right? But we know it's relative. How many of you work cross-culturally and you show up for an appointment on time and you find out that on time is uh, two hours late in that culture and it's just perfectly fine, right? You know, I can remember... Uh, I can remember God dealing with me in this way in a very simple moment. Nothing as emotional as this, but I remember in 1994 him coming to me and, and speaking to me in a dream saying, the time is soon for transition in your job. Three and a half years later, I figured six months. I, I actually woke up and told Wendy, we're going to be moving in six months at the latest. Three and a half years later, And for many of you, you're trying to figure this thing out where God's spoken to you promises about your marriage, about your kids, about your job. And three years, a decade, 20 years later, you're still struggling with where's that timing, God? Where's the answer? And God's grace, unfortunately, unfortunately, rarely seems to operate according to our timing. You know, last week we looked at Jesus in the storm. And as a part of the conclusion to that, we talked about how the storms in our life are really impersonal. And the one difference is that Jesus is personal to us. And he's basically saying to us in the storm that my grace and my love are compatible with you going through storms, even when you don't think so, because I've got a good plan for you. And this week, when we look at this passage, uh, Tim Keller makes a similar comment about this one, and he says it this way. He says, Jesus is not just saying to us in in this passage that I will not be hurried, but I love you anyway. He's actually saying to us, I will not be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing, he's saying. And if you insist on imposing your absolutely, objectively, universally, right and true understanding of timing on me... 
then you will never feel loved by me, and it will be largely your fault. Haven't we all felt this? Maybe maybe we haven't felt it to the level of Jairus. Some of us have. Some of us have faced that level of feeling and tragedy in our life. But regardless of whether our tragedy is that great, our pressure is as great as Jairus, we've all felt the questions, why are you delaying God? Why Why do you not see the urgency of my need here? Why are you not seeing the urgency of the need in the one I love and instead doing nothing or just having a chat with this person over here? And I hate it when I hear this person over here say, well, God spoke to me and blessed me and it was so beautiful and it's nothing compared to what I'm waiting for. Why are you blessing this person over here who isn't faithful, isn't even as faithful as I am? And I'm sitting here waiting. We've all asked those questions. And Jesus is teaching us several lessons in this, in the delays. First one is this. Jesus in the delays is always both going to give and he's going to get more. We're, we're both, or he's going to ask us to give more and we're going to get more than we bargained for going in. Haven't you... Learn this in your own life and experience this at times in your life. Thinking back on some of the delays that have now been answered, resolved. Can't you look back at some of those times and say, you know, I hated it then, but man, did I learn a lot and God bless me through that in amazing ways I could only imagine. You see, in both of these instances, the people came to Jesus for one simple thing, for healing. In Jairus, he came prepared enough to have enough faith that hopefully they would get back home before she died. He came for a healing. And Jesus gave him a resurrection. The woman, she came with just enough faith to touch and run. Just touch and run. That's all she had the faith for. But Jesus made her face her fear. He called her out. And think about who this woman is. This, this, this woman with this issue of blood, according to Old Testament law, would have been ceremonially unclean, much like a leper. The only difference is that the lepers would have been forced to live out in the countryside. She would have been most of her life, these last 12 years, isolated to living most of her time in her room, contained away from people. She was not just physically ill, This woman, because of 12 years of suffering, was spiritually outcast. She could not worship with the people. In fact, most of the people would have looked at her and said, this woman is cursed by God because he will not heal her. She is socially, physically, and spiritually an outcast, wounded in every respect of the term. And in her going even into this crowd to touch Jesus, she's risking rebuke and risking real harm to herself because in their law, any, anybody she touched became unclean. And think about this woman's faith. Seeing doctor after doctor quoting Scripture over and over again, trying to do the right things to the point that she has no money, no options, and yet this is such a beautiful reinforcement of what we talked about a, a couple weeks ago in the mustard seed. She has just just enough faith to touch and run. You know, she must have thought, 
in approaching this, she must have thought, I'm so rejected by God. And it's amazing yet that she believed that she could be healed in the midst of saying, I don't deserve to even ask. I don't deserve to even command his attention. If I can just touch him without him knowing it, that's all I deserve because that's all I'm worth. And yet, this mustard seed of faith for her is beautiful, and yet it's at the same time, it's religious at best. It's, it's almost a superstition for her. Because as we look at the text that describe the same instance elsewhere, the words that are used to describe what she was actually touching is, is, is that she was touching the fringe of his garment. And in, the, in that day, that fringe actually referred to the fact that Jesus, as a devout Jew and as a holy man, would have been wearing a prayer shawl that had, and there's a whole lot of meaning to, had fringes on it that represented all the laws in the Old Testament. There was a whole lot of meaning to that that we could go into. But, but she looked at him, this holy man who was doing good things, wearing his prayer shawl and going, if I can just touch that holy thing, then I'll get my healing. It's almost this magical thing that she's after with a little bit of faith. But Jesus wants her to get more than that. And so when he touches her and the, the power goes out of him, and she, he turns and stops the crowd and calls her out and says, I need you to identify yourself and tell the whole story. He wants her faith to be so much more than magical, superstitious, touching and running, feeling like, man, I got what I needed, but I'm still an outcast. He wants to touch her in a way that she knows that she has his full attention, that he loves her enough to stop in the middle of a crowd and listen to her full story. Because he's not just interested in just a physical healing for her. Like he's not just interested in a physical healing for Jairus' daughter. He's interested in changing her entire life and establishing relationship. He's removing the rock of shame that hides under the surface of her life. He's, He's removing the feeling that she's unworthy of attention. He's removing the sense that I'm just good enough just to get by. And I don't deserve anything else. And instead, he invites her to this beautiful relationship. You see, Jesus always asks you to give more than you bargained for. And he gives you much more than you could ever have hoped for in the process. The second lesson is this, that Jesus turns the priorities of the world upside down. Jairus, this this man in a male-dominated culture. And not only this man, but a very, very influential man, powerful man, wealthy man, religious, good man, comes to Jesus with this acute, desperate emergency need. And this woman, who has no spiritual, no social, no relational capital whatsoever in her world, She's a woman in a culture that women are barely above property level. And Jesus gives her the undivided attention. Amidst the pressure of Jairus, amidst the pressure of his disciples going, Jesus, it's time to move on. What are you thinking? And this is so much like Jesus. 
You read the stories that he tells, the Good Samaritan, the, the parable of the publican and the, and the, and the Pharisee, and, and you see him in his actions with the, with the Samaritan woman and with Zacchaeus and with so many other people, the woman at the, uh, the, the, uh, the adulterous woman. You see him being this person who just goes through life and just is drawn to connecting with the outsider, with the person who is down and out, because for him it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't even matter if you've been on the paid staff of hell as a receptionist. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter how unfaithful you've been. It doesn't matter how, how much you've betrayed him or betrayed other people. Jesus still is willing to turn towards you when you even just have enough faith to touch and run and to pursue you and give you his undivided attention. And yet the amazing thing is in this he hasn't forgotten Jairus either. And the third lesson is this, that if God is delaying something in your life, and I know this is going to sound really cliche, if God is delaying something in your life, if God is practicing malpractice in an area of your life, and that's what you think, there is some significant piece of information that you don't have. And it's not necessarily always even important that you do have it. You may not know what he intends to bring to you. You may not know what he's going to ask more of you. You may not know what he's going to do more for you. And it may not even be related to you why he's delaying. We just don't know that. And yet we look at it and on the the surface it's unconscionable for Jesus to, to let a little girl die. But we know something more about Jesus than they did at that moment. We know Jesus' intent and his outcomes. We know that it's no harder for Jesus to, to raise a little girl from the dead than it is to heal her from being sick. And they can't see that. And too often in life, we can't see that either. Did Jairus ever really get the full import of what happened? Did Jairus really ever fully understand why Jesus delayed? Did, did Jairus ever really fully understand why Jesus spent all the time with the woman and how greatly that transformed her life? Did he ever really understand that? Did the woman ever really understand what was happening in Jairus' life in the delay and, and that Jesus was intending to give him more than he could ever think of, that he came with faith for one thing and he was going to teach him to have faith for something, something? Did they ever know that? Probably not. And is God delaying something in your life? Are you, are you frustrated? Are you ready to give up? Are you mad at him? Jesus is saying to you, that there is something massively crucial that I know better than you on, that I am good, that I am loving, that even if I'm delaying, I'm not forgetting you just like I didn't forget Jairus. And you can trust me. And it's hard to say that. The reason it comes across so cliche is it's so hard to say that because you probably know people in this room and I know people in this room that if you knew what was going on in their life right now, it would break your heart. It would bring you to tears. And you would be crying out to God saying, Why have you not answered that one? I don't understand your timing on that. And yet, what are the lessons he teaches us in delays? You have some that you could profoundly state in a sentence. I could tell you stories about how God used delays to to knock the self-righteousness out of me, to knock the self-centeredness out of me and, and teach me to have so much of a better life. And you'd probably have some of those same stories. 
and they're real, but in the midst of pain, they feel so small, don't they? And here's the deal. Jesus is not attempting to answer all of our questions. In fact, what this passage is doing is Jesus is intentionally reinforcing the fact of the mystery of God and inviting us in the midst of that to a place of rest and trust. And fourth, Jesus shows us his tenderness in the delays and in the resoluteness of his love. Jairus' heart pounding, the tension growing, the very real need fighting within himself not to just grab Jesus and say, Come now! Not to push him, fearing that they're too late. And Jesus turns to Jairus with such sensitivity to the crisis moment in his life at the moment. Touches him and says, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Just trust me. And then immediately further assures him by expediting the process and basically says, only Peter and James and John and I and you are going to go. And the rest of his disciples, you can picture it, probably form a wall. All 12 of them plus the 70, they probably form a wall and say, leave him alone, everybody stay here, he'll be back later. And he expedites the process immediately in the moment. And they get there and there's professional mourners out there. If you understand the culture, the people who are wailing and crying were professional hired mourners. It was something that was actually required by the law. If you were poor, you had to have X number. If you were wealthy, you obviously had more. So there's probably a whole lot of them there because he's a wealthy man. And Jesus comes to that group and he says, Why all the commotion and the wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him, showing you how professional they were. Now, why the reference to sleep? I mean, it's clear from the other passages and and even this passage that Jesus and the disciples knew the girl was dead. So why? And and then we see Jesus walk into the room and only the mom and the dad and three disciples and him and the little dead girl on on the bed. And he walks over to her and says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And in order to really understand the tenderness of this moment, you have to think if you're a parent or if you're a child, think back to when your parent came into your room in the greatest tenderness, the greatest joy, and knelt down by your bed or sat on the edge of your bed and touched you, caressed your head and said, Sweetie, it's time to get up. We have such a fun day planned today. It's that kind of a tenderness that this word is all about, that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus gently lifts her up through death into life like just simply waking up a child for, from sleep for a fun day. And in so doing, Jesus is assuring us of several things. Not only is his love and power, to, not only is he assuring us of his love and power to heal in this life, which obviously this story is all about, he's inviting us not to give up no matter how long we've been struggling with physical or emotional or pain or relational pain in life, he's inviting us not to give up on praying for healing in those areas and to pursuing him for healing in those areas. But he's also going a step further than that and assuring us that if we hold his hand, in fact, if we can't even hold his hand, he's going to reach out and grab our hand and that one day in death, he'll he'll lift us through death as though it's a loving parent coming to the bed and caressing their child, grabbing their hand and saying, sweetie, it's time to get up. We've got a great day planned. Think about that feeling for yourself. When you were a child, 
and you were afraid or you were confused or, or lost or concerned or whatever, whatever the feeling was, what did it feel like when your, your mom or dad would come over and grab your hand? Didn't, it feel, didn't all of a sudden everything feel safe? Now, we know that's not true. You know, we know you really weren't 100% safe, right? Because it doesn't matter how good a parent we are or how strong of a parent we are. We can't protect our kids from everything. But, but didn't you feel like everything was right in the world and everything was safe at that moment? And God, this perfect, perfect, tender father, this, this parent with absolute power who sets the stars in the sky, who created everybody's DNA unique, who created you in his image, comes to you and holds your hand and assures you, why would you want to hurry someone like that? Why would you want to hurry someone so powerful, so loving, so all-knowing in the delays that we experience when we know that he's so good and he asks us to give more than we bargained for, but he gives so much more than we ever hoped for in the process. You know, it's even more beautiful when we think about Jesus on the cross when he says to the Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus lost the hand of the Father in that moment and he did it for this reason, to assure us that he would never lose our hand. He lost the hand for us so that we never have to lose the hand of God. Who do you identify with most in this story? As we've talked about this, who do you identify most with right now in your life and the circumstances going on for you? Do you identify most with the woman? You approach God with the issues you have and the problems you're facing, the healing you need, the emotional healing, the physical healing, whatever, the, the provision you need. Do you approach Him with the idea that I don't really deserve much? If I can just, if I can just come to church and, and touch and run, that's, that's all I really deserve. Or do you identify more with, with Jairus, who's desperately anxious, confused, angry? with the delays. Why have you not answered yet, God? Where are you at? Or maybe some of you identify with the little girl because you've come through a long season, a difficult season, and all of a sudden God has come to you and he's lifted you from death to life in that area. Jesus is in the delays. He's inviting us wherever we're at to trust him, to continue to pursue him, to know that he's not ever going to let go of our hand. Can I pray for you?